Morning. Turning your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. Um, before I start, uh, the last time I was here was in May, mid-May, um, as far as preaching. Um, and uh, when I was here, I think the RUF group was uh, at uh, Panama City. Um, I, I wanted to say it then, but there was no one here to say it to. Uh, I, I'm impressed with the RUF group here and how many we, you have here. I, I was, uh, many years ago, uh, probably when some of you students were born, I was a, well, I was before that, I was a student in RUF in college and uh, an intern and then later a campus minister. So um, I'm impressed with uh, your uh, diligence to be here on Sunday morning. So um, the Lord bless you. Um, great ministry. First Peter 5. Next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, this church will install its new pastor, Dennis Griffith. And I was calling Griffin uh, other times. I know it's Griffith, Andy Griffith, Dennis Griffith. That's how I remember that. Uh, and uh, I have a lot of people I know who are Griffin, and so I, I'm having to sort through that. Uh, and no doubt many of you have been praying for him. You've been praying for the past year for, for, the, for him, for his family, uh, even though you didn't know him at the time. Uh, and you're now praying uh, for this next week, I, I hope, and uh, praying for them and their transition. Um, and since the theme of pastor or the pastoring uh, theme is kind of in our head, I thought it would be appropriate to look at a passage that speaks directly to elders. First uh, Peter 5. Um, the elders being... Um, in our denomination, we make a distinction between the ruling elder and teaching elder only in the sense that... Uh, first of all, they, they have equal authority as elders. We have uh, within, we, we recognize that. An elder is an elder, uh, that God ha has set apart that office for ministry. Um, but we also make the distinction that there are certain elders, teaching elders we call them, who uh, uh, spend more time uh, reflecting and uh, teaching God's word and make their living, so to speak, from, uh, from the ministry. And so this morning I'm speaking... Direct, more directly to that, to uh, how can you pray for your pastors? And this would also include uh, Camper, not just Dennis and, and Ben as well, because they are, are pastors here. And uh, so it, I want to overlay that, this text with that question. Although it doesn't say specifically this is what you should pray about, this is, it doesn't talk about prayer specifically, it does mention uh, three um, warnings or temptations that pastors face. And this uh, passage, I think, can help educate us on how we can better pray for our pastors. And so let's look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 6. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and, as, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, you indeed are the chief shepherd, 
And we come to you, our shepherd, knowing that you know um, very intimately the, the needs of your sheep. And you know as well um, the fallibility of the under-shepherds, of your under-shepherds. And we pray that you would, through the ministry of your word, uh, educate us, encourage us in how we might uh, pray for those you have called to lead your people. And we pray this in your name. Amen. This past week, I caught a few minutes here and there of a documentary that was on the History Channel about 9-11. It was uh, aired on Tuesday, which was 9-11. And uh, the, there's a new documentary. I've seen various documentaries about uh, 9-11. And um, this one was unique in that it was a real-time compilation of uh, various video footage that was gathered and uh, had a running clock uh, from basically the time uh, the first tower was hit till, uh, till they both were fall had fallen. And uh, what was uh, interesting is probably not the best word, but what was striking about this was uh, at 9.55 on the clock, um, they, they had some footage of some firemen. Um, who were getting out of the trucks, getting ready. You, 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 it was right up close. You could see the concern on their faces uh, as they just watched this building, and they were kind of making their plan and making their way to the building. This is 9.55, and uh, as some of you might know, 9.59 is when the, the first tower fell. And uh, as I watched that, it was very surreal, still very tragic and moving to know that those men were about to die. And... Uh, it, it reminded me of uh, the job hazards of, of a fireman. Um, there are real known job hazards for firemen, for policemen. Uh, I work with soldiers and have been in combat zones, and I've experienced real job hazards there that you know that these things can kill you. Well, what Peter talks about here is... Um, Maybe not some job hazards for pastors that can physically kill them, at least in the immediate future, but uh, maybe some hazards that can kill their ministry. And I want to look at these, these three hazards that uh, Peter, these temptations that uh, Peter lays out before us. Um, and I want us to uh, examine them with a fresh eye. So what are these? Uh, they are real temptations these that Peter mentions, that pastors face. I've, I've known of pastors, before I even get into this, I've known of pastors who've lost their ministry because of uh, sexual indiscretion, affairs, but I've never known pastors who have actually left the ministry because of this, but these are still true uh, temptations and hazards for pastors. So let's look at, that, look at them. What are these? Well, the first one uh, I th that uh, Peter mentions here is the hazard... Uh, the job hazard, number one, would be uh, the hazard of ease, of laziness. Peter writes to the elders. He, he says, I exhort the elders among you. He gives a strong directive to these elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he says, not under compulsion. Not under compulsion. It seems clear that Peter... More importantly, that God wants men who want the ministry, who don't need external compulsion to move them to minister to people. 
the temptation can occur over time when you're in the ministry. When you first come into ministry, you have a lot of energy and zeal to, to, to get up in the morning and, to, and to, to minister to God's people. But over time, if you don't watch your heart and your attitudes, you can slip into a, a pattern of ministry that um, can maybe be even fall into laziness. Not that you're necessarily sleeping uh, till noon and not, not doing anything, but you maybe will avoid the things you know you need to be doing. Uh, you might maybe seek a little more ease and comfort and avoid the confrontation that needs to uh, occur. The temptation is there, and it's real. And Peter is saying, listen, men, you, you, you should not need external compulsion to get you to write a sermon, to get you to pray for your people, to visit them. Last year at this time, my family and I were at Fort Jackson, uh, Fort Jackson's in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and we were, uh, I was in a school there for six months, so we lived there six months, and Fort Jackson is one of the few military bases that is a basic training base, where many of the new soldiers that come into the Army go through either Fort Jackson or Fort Benning, or uh, there's a couple others, but um, uh, Fort Jackson's one of those bases, and it's pretty impressive, at five in the morning you will hear them, because we lived on base, you will hear them running, doing cadence calls and whatnot, and uh, uh, it's impressive to know that these 18, 19-year-olds are out there at 5 in the morning running. And, and, and they are to be commended for volunteering to serve. But I will tell you this, that most of them, the, of them are not there because of any internal compulsion to have them there. <laughs> there is an external compulsion. Uh, and it, it goes like this. Light goes on at 4.30 in the morning and somebody's yelling at them to get out of their, their bunks. Uh, Peter is saying, listen, elders... You, don't, you shouldn't need that external compulsion. Now, let me just say this as an aside. I, I, am, I do not have any intel on Camper or Ben or Dennis that they are lazy, okay? Uh, so this is in no way being, pre, you know, I wasn't uh, inspired to do this because I, you know, sensed that Camper needed this. Although I do live behind here, and I was running at 5 a.m. The, the morning. I didn't see his car out there, so I don't know. Uh, you might be slipping a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Good. All right. I trust you. But the temptation is real. And, and, and this can look a lot of different ways. And it, it can develop in a pastor's life in various ways. But the temptation can be there over a while where uh, maybe that laziness looks like somebody who just kind of phones it in, if you know what I mean. They, 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 they know the techniques of ministry. They know kind of the things to say, the words to say, the way to sound in a prayer. You know all the things to say, to do, uh, how to look, and uh, yet you're just kind of phoning it in. You're not really there. In fact, Eugene Peterson is a minister who, who writes books kind of to ministers, to pastors. He wrote, in one of his books, he, in a tongue-in-cheek manner, says, I've, I think I've come up with a plan. I'm going to start a new school for pastors. Instead of three-year, four-year seminary degree where you, the pastor learns God's words and labors over his word and prays and develops into a mature man of God, I think I can cut, take a shortcut and still make ministers because in his observation, many ministers have taken this route, at least internally. Uh, and he said it would go like this. It would be a two-month trade school or so. And uh, he would have a class on voice control for prayer, um, how to turn your head in counseling in just the right way to look empathetic, um, how to manage your office, uh, how to creatively plagiarize sermons, um, and how to project a right image. 
Uh, and he, in fact, he says, I know this can work because there have been uh, documented cases of men who have impersonated doctors uh, and gotten away with it for months on end before anybody knew that they were imposters. Now, he's, he goes on to say that now plumbers, electricians, painters, butchers, they could never get away with that. They would be known in 20 seconds. But ministers can go for a long time. But the bottom line is this. Uh, the pastorate is an easy place. It really is an easy place to be lazy. You can get away with a lot. The technique without the reality, having to have external compulsion, no inner drive for the gospel. Pray for your pastors. Pray that they would want the ministry. You need to understand the pastor's job is to tell you how great God is. Every week from this pulpit, and in, and in many other ways, his job is to tell you that, even if he's not feeling. And there will be days when he's not feeling that. that he, he doesn't have that internal uh, warm and fuzzy that God is good. But he still knows he needs to tell you that. Uh, the temptation can be over time where you can become a cardboard cutout of yourself. That uh, you uh, can slip into a ministry that needs external compulsion. It says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Well, what does willingly look like? Well, I'm, I was reminded of, about a month ago of what willingly really looks like. Uh, about a month ago, uh, I found out I had a, on a Wednesday, I found out I had a Friday off. I was getting a Friday off, and uh, Don and I decided, hey, we're going to take the kids to Bush Gardens. We had not been there yet since we've, we've lived here eight months. We hadn't gone there yet, and the kids had been wanting to go. And so uh, we made a plan, told the kids on Thursday, hey, we're going tomorrow to Bush Gardens, and they were excited. Well, um, our youngest, Ross, he's eight, and he's our, I mean, he's, a, our, I guess, a, our sleepyhead. Uh, he's the one that takes a lot of external compulsion to get him out of bed in the morning. And um, the Friday morning comes, and before the sun is even up, Ross is downstairs, uh, dressed and ready to go. So what does willingly look like? It looks like an eight-year-old boy who's ready to go to Bush Gardens. That's willingly. <laughs> But willingly, pray that your pastor has an internal gospel motivation to minister, not under compulsion. What's the second warning or job hazard that Peter cites here? Well, it's in that same verse too. Not only not under compulsion, but he also says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, the most obvious application of this is, uh, is greed. But I will tell you that uh, most men I know uh, don't enter the pastorate to make money. That's not the reason. There's other places to make more money than in the pastorate. Not to say that you can't be comfortable and you know, make a nice living, so to speak. But uh, most men don't, enter, don't start out entering to, to make money. Also, there's, most men don't enter the ministry for the social clout that it gains, at least in our day and age. Uh, when you tell somebody you're a pastor, it's not that people are that impressed. They just kind of look at you with maybe a blank stare or a, a nice condescending tap on the head. Uh, so, uh, but there is a gain that you, you, do, you, you can seek in the ministry, a shameful gain. And it usually occurs within the culture of the church. Uh, you can, after a while, seek to, to uh, climb the, the church ladder, seeking respect, uh, having, uh, having people hear you preach, or maybe even desiring that one day you might get a book published. Uh, th think about it. Uh, 
Where else do you have a group of people this size or greater to come and listen to you every week for at least 30 minutes to what you have to say? And they can't talk back. <laughs> After a while, if you don't watch your own heart, it can go, it can, it can, uh, go to your head. It can go to your ego. Pray for your pastors. When I was in seminary, there's a, a minister who uh, worked in uh, St. Louis, a pastor in St. Louis at a church, a PCA church near the seminary. And uh, he also taught some at the seminary, some preaching classes. And uh, he told the story in one of his sermons once of uh, when he was, uh, uh, after one of his sermons, he felt really good about. And he, as uh, he got in the car to drive home with his wife, uh, feeling confident, he looked to her and he said, uh, and he's from Mississippi, he said, Sweet Pea. How many great preachers do you think there are in the PCA? To which she responded, one less than you think. <laughs> Peter warns against ego, the shameful game, the ego that can be easy, an easy temptation for a pastor. Pray for your pastor that they would not minister for shameful gain. Pray for their egos, because they have them. There is a godly ambition. There is a godly motivation to have, uh, a sense of, of uh, true ambition to see things happen that's necessary for a pastor. But there's also a worldly ambition that seeks its own agenda, to build its own personal kingdom. Dwight L. Moody was, was uh, asked by a man once, um, or this man responded, uh, made the comment saying, my congregation is too small. To which Moody replied, well, maybe it is as large as you'd like to give an account for on the day of judgment. John MacArthur describes some of the pastors he's seen in the ministry as self-styled messiahs. Uh, they're megalomaniacs. They want to win the world and win it now. And if you get in their way, they want to trample you. I said it earlier that the pastor, pastorate is a very easy place to become lazy. But on the flip side, it's just as easy to become a workaholic, uh, to be driven by this idol of success that you might have, to build your own kingdom. Pray, pray for your pastors that they would have eager service, not for shameful gain. Listen, I deal with it more than probably as a chaplain, a little more than um, pastors in civilian uh, settings. As chaplains, uh, the, the, there's a greater temptation for us in this manner uh, because we wear rank, uh, rank of officer, and it can go as high as a two-star general in the chaplaincy. And, the, and, and you see that occasionally uh, the chaplains will begin to wear their rank, so to speak, more than the cross uh, for shameful gain. Uh, pray that, that, uh, that pastors, that your pastors, that uh, the men who lead you would minister not for shameful gain, but, but eagerly. So Peter warns against uh, laziness. He warns against ego. And the last thing he warns against is the sin of control, power, of pride. Look at verse 3. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Every Lord's Day we gather, and as God's people, 
we gather to hear God's appointed man proclaim his word. That is, that is the, the chief role of the pastor. But what is he really doing when he's up here? Well, one way to look at it is that the pastor is giving you a reality check every Sunday. A reality check. You see, we, sin dulls our hearts. It really dulls our heart to reality, to what's, what's really true. Because what's really true in this world is this, that we live before the face of a holy God who is transcendent over the universe. A God who is a consuming fire. Not a bonfire, but a consuming fire, like a firestorm kind of fire. A God who, Isaiah says, the nations are but a drop in the bucket. A God who has heaven as his throne and the earth as his footstool. And the pastor's job is to bring that reality to bear in your life every week. But he also, we also have another reality problem. We have a, a wrong view of ourselves. Some come here weighed down with guilt, not knowing what to do with it, laid over with burdens. The pastor's job is to come and say, that same God stoops down. He is very near. He is a God who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That is his job each and every week. And he has the authority, not in and of himself, but from God himself, to proclaim that message every week. He proclaims the good news that salvation is through Jesus Christ and him alone, in faith in him alone. He has real authority. In 2005, September of 2005, or late August, early September of 2005, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. At the time, I was serving as a chaplain in the 82nd Airborne Division. And if you know anything about the 82nd Airborne Division, I know some of you do in here, uh, it, is, it is the strategic response division to any type of national crisis that uh, the, the president can use. Um, and so that means that that division, or at least parts of the division, are always ready to go anywhere in the world within 18 hours. And so at that particular time, my unit that I was a chaplain of, uh, we were the quick response force. We were the one ready to go. Bags were packed. And so when Katrina hit, within a few hours, we were in New Orleans. And so for the next month, we uh, patrolled the streets, uh, keeping any chaos, uh, keeping the chaos down. Uh, we uh, helped evacuate uh, people from that city. We would go from house to house, uh, urging those who had not evacuated to, to leave. But what we didn't know until we got down there, and what many people, many of you may not know, is that as active duty soldiers, we had no authority in New Orleans. That is, we couldn't go into a house and make them leave. We could only say, hey, it would be a good idea if you left. Uh, no authority at all. Only the National Guard soldiers had authority because they serve under a different title code while they're serving as, as a state National Guard. So the Louisiana National Guard, they were the ones that would come in behind us if those people wouldn't leave and by force could move them out. They had the real authority. Well, every Sunday, your minister, your pastor, your shepherd comes up here and he has real authority. Real authority that's not derived in and of himself, but from God to proclaim to you the good news. Now, I say all of that about what the pastor does up here on Sunday and his authority to tell you this, that because he has that authority, there is a great temptation to misuse this pulpit, to misuse the authority that God has given you as a pastor. 
You can lay burden on God's people and not give them any way to get out. You can preach a law without grace. You can expose guilt without offering a savior. You can offer life management techniques without giving any real true hope. There are so many ways that a pastor can misuse the authority given to him here. You can manipulate people for your own kingdom. Some men go into the ministry have, do have control issues. Uh, but those who don't have control issues can still fall into a misuse of authority. So pray for your pastors. Pray that they would use the authority that God has given them in a the right way. Pray that they would not control or seek to have power or domineer over the flock that God has given them. But what's the hope for the pastor? Well, verse 4 really gives the hope. It talks about the chief shepherd. The pastor has, the shepherd has as his model, the chief shepherd, who did not come to serve under compulsion. Uh, he came willingly. He came and laid down his life. He did not come uh, for shameful gain. He was God. He laid down the prerogatives that came with being God and left heaven and came to earth and dwelt among us. Fully God, fully man, and yet walking among us. He didn't domineer. He has all authority. He had all authority. And yet he came to serve, not to be served. That is the hope for your pastor, for you. Lloyd Douglas is a novelist, and uh, when he was a university student, he wrote um, about the time when he, the, the apartment he lived in, there was an elderly man that lived uh, beneath him who was a retired music teacher. And uh, every day, uh, Lloyd would go downstairs and uh, poke his head in the door and say, what's the good news to this uh, music teacher? And this elderly gentleman would uh, pick up his tuning fork tap the side of his wheelchair and say, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. and It will be middle C a thousand years ago. The tenor upstairs is flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, this is middle C. To the shepherds among us, Peter says, listen, this is middle C, the chief shepherd. He is where you draw your life from. He is the one who humbled himself. He is the one who serves. He is the one who laid down his life. How can you pray for your pastor? Pray, pray that he would be so fixated on the chief shepherd, so fixated on Jesus, that the life of Christ would flow out of him to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, we do thank you that you are gracious uh, with your leaders um, and that uh, you do not give authority without giving the strength and the motivation to execute what you have called us to do. We do pray for Camper, we do pray for Ben, we pray for Dennis and we, we hold them up to you that you would enable them to minister willingly, eagerly, serving because they love you, Jesus, because most of all, they know that they have been loved by you. And we pray that this congregation would benefit greatly from it, and that this church would grow, and that 
that people would mature in godliness and love for you and love for each other. We thank you. We praise you. In your name, amen.